Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, good morning, Tom. How are you today? Good morning, Russ. It's a pretty rainy day here in Austin. It's is doing it? pretty good. You have yeah. like some sort of a weird graph on your back uh, behind you there. I'm not really sure yeah, what that is. Yeah, it's, it's actually a diagram. Me, me and my boys were learning about um, flight paths and things with um, model rockets. Uh, so okay, well, that's the really label, cool. The label says Apogee up there. So Yes, Apogee, which is yep. an asymptote against, anyway, whatever. That's, that's another thing. You should pick up a copy of Hatcher's Notebook. You'll find uh-huh. it fascinating. Uh, it's a very, very old book, but it's where they were discovering and building tables for the flight of projectiles back in World War I and World War II time frame. And uh, there's a whole notebook on all the physics of, you know, why a projectile goes a certain way and the shape, the outer shape and the, all this stuff, how it deals with wind resistance and stuff. So it's kind of cool. And we are joined today with, uh, by Chris Wood, who's going to talk to us about masks. And costume parties. Is that the... <laughs> no, no costume parties. No um, costume parties. Okay. At least not for me. Does every time the mask working group meet, you have to wear a costume? Is that the why it's called? No, never mind. No, um, although there have been like various hats involved, like like jester-like hats. People we've talked about getting, you know, uh, working group branded like masks um, yeah. uh, in, in the peak of the pandemic. Um, nice. But so far, none of those have really come no, to No, nobody's yet, ever but. done any of that, which is kind of sad, <laughs> actually. Okay, so talk to us about mask. Like, what what is the background? Why was this started kind of a thing? What what problems trying to be solved here? Yeah, so mask, uh, as with every working group in the ITF, uh, is an acronym. It, it stands for uh, Multiplexed Application Substrate Over Quick Encryption. Um, which is <laughs> you say that name, again really fast. <laughs> um, it's a it's a very cute name. It was uh, I, I think I can't remember exactly when it came into you know um, into existence, but um, uh, the brainchild of it is David Skenazi at Google. Um, he was a you know he is a quick enthusiast um, and a key contributor to all the quick efforts. Um, and uh, long ago, he had this sort of vision for. Um, you know, what you could do with quick, um, you know, for, for network security, for privacy and whatnot. And one of those things was like, maybe you could run like VPNs over quick. Maybe you could, you know, um, uh, alongside like an HTTPS server running on port 443, run a VPN such that if, uh, you know, you wanted to bypass sensors or, you know, do access services in, in a covert way, you could do so without sort of sticking out. Um, and so the, the, if you go back through the, the archives um, of the uh, individual drafts, you'll see um, that one of the first versions of this thing that was written, and it was like this, this, this grand framework for um, deploying these, these proxy-like services um, over quick. Um, quick because like this was you know, the latest and greatest transport protocol that came out of the ITF. Um, it's... it's uh, leaps forward in, in many ways, in many respects, over TCP and TLS, um, and it um, supports all all these new compelling types of use cases. Um, and uh, you know that the the way the things get developed in the ITF is people come typically with an idea, um, it gets battered around a bit, 
and eventually it gets refined down to something that's like manageable or something that can be uh, accomplished in like a reasonable time frame um, with some degree of consensus. And uh, eventually mass sort of like went from this, you know, grand framework to, you know, a, a very simple idea or very simple concept of like, how do you proxy uh, datagrams, UDP datagrams over, over HTTP alongside, you know, the existing mechanism for proxying TCP streams over HTTP by the connect method. Um, and so that's kind of what the, the working group was chartered to do. And it's basically in the process of finishing up doing specifying parallels to the HTTP connect method for proxying UDP datagrams uh, and even IP datagrams now. So you can really build any, or you really can really proxy any sort of TCP application now, UDP application, and even IP-based application um, all over HTTP, um, regardless of the version, um, uh, be it like HTTP2 that runs over TCP or HTTP3 that runs over QUIC. Um, and uh, that's enabled a, a ton of cool stuff in practice. And um, that's the... I think that's the, the you know, the elevator pitch, if I would describe it. Yeah, so it's interesting because you would think, listening to a lot of people in the world, that proxies are kind of a thing of the past. Like mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. people don't really use proxies for anything any longer. And yet, here's an entire working group kind of working on <laughs> proxies. So, yeah. you know, what's, I guess... Let's start there. Like, what is the advantage of a proxy in this situation? Because what you're trying to do is privacy preserving. So why a proxy specifically? Yeah. Um, so uh, the I think in recent years, um, the, the the threat model that, you know, browsers and, and uh, more privacy-focused clients have been concerned of is uh, tracking of users. Um and there's a lot of ways that, you know, web services and applications can go about doing that. Um, one of the uh, classic ways that they go about doing that is by looking at the IP address, which, um, you know, the IP address coupled with some other sort of like uh, identifier, like the user agent of the browser um, has historically been like a pretty um, uh, a high value uh, signal for an individual user. So you can use like the IP address plus some other bits hanging around that are available to you. It through the course of like a normal HTTP exchange to track individuals and, and not only track them, but like geolocate them as well. Cause the IP address has like certain topological information carried and in wrapped up in it that you might use to like track a certain person's whereabouts as they're, you know, going around and using, using your application and whatnot. Um, and, and that's not great. Like that's not a great situation to be in, um, you know, systems that sort of enable this, this, you know, passive, um, tracking of users uh without their sort of consent is um uh i think like, i think in you know 2023 at least um sort of no longer acceptable uh, uh although you might get different opinions on that but that's my personal take um so we wanted to see if there's a way to you know get rid of the ip address as a as a sort of sticky identifier for individual users um and proxies are like the natural thing natural way to do that um uh, we talked about last time, you know, Odo um, over Blue DNS over HTTPS um, was designed specifically for that reason. So you, you can't, you know, link a specific individual's query or a specific query to an individual based on the IP address. And in Oblivious HTTP, the extension of Odo um, is very much the same thing. And Mask is like just the, you know, 
yet another version of this flavor technology, but oriented around uh, connections, like like transport connections, TLS connections, end-to-end things, rather than application messages. And uh, so, so that's why it's important. Like the you know the, the the internet and the web browser experience is built around connections, and so we needed technologies for like you know uh, making the IP address less unique to individuals. Um, without sort of compromising on you know the, the functionality of the web, like you, you need to you need to open up a connection to an origin um, to like connect to it to, to fetch pictures of cats or whatever it is you're doing. Um, cats, uh, but you don't Gotta necessarily want to reveal your IP address. Everybody, yeah, everybody wants cats. <laughs> um, I mean, so, I'm a dog person myself. I would prefer to fetch pictures of dogs. Yeah, but, but, but yeah, but it's but right. Dogs don't break the internet. Cats do. I don't know. So, dogs yeah. never do any bad things. <laughs> yes, yes. So would it would it be fair to compare Mask then to to call it like an explicit forward proxy for Quick? Is that is that a, a okay way to think about it, or is it more enhanced than that? Uh, that's probably a fair way to describe it. Yeah. It's it's not specifically for quick. I would say it's for um, things that are um, uh, uh, running over HTTP. So it applies to TCP as well, uh, TCP and TLS as well, um, and plain text, just TCP without TLS on top. Mask is just a very cute name, um, and we didn't happen to have you know, the sort of mechanics uh, for building these types of systems on top of quick yet. And so that, that mask was specifically charged to, do, to deliver that piece of the puzzle. Um, in fact, before Mask sort of came into existence, um, uh, there have been products like built around, you know, the this, this privacy uh, or this proxy technology, uh, like Firefox's private network um, uh, product, which is an, a, a regular HTTP Connect-based proxy that um, does exactly what you think it does. It like it you use HTTP Connect through a proxy to you know open up connections to an origin, thereby hiding your IP address from that particular origin. Yeah, mask is mask was just like filling out, you know, the the, the quick side that had not yet been developed um, mm-hmm. in, in the group or in the community. And what kind of what kind of assumptions does it make in terms of infrastructure? Like when we talked about Odoo, Odoo, there was uh, you know a certain number of a small number of trusted entities operating these proxies. Um, in this mm-hmm. in the mask world, how's how is that? What's the philosophy there? Um, so. Mask is, I think, a bit different from uh, OHTTP and Odo in that way, and that the the sort of the kind of deliverable of the group is uh, this this new HTTP uh, extension, mm-hmm. basically for for proxying datagrams, uh, be it UDP datagrams or IP datagrams or whatever. Um, it doesn't really get into um, deployment specific considerations, like how you might build a proxy like system on top of these protocols. But the, the the same sort of deployment assumptions, um, you know, come into existence um, here. So take I call it private relay as, as you know, perhaps the, the canonical example of, you know, this being used in practice right now. There are multiple non-colluding servers that are the proxies themselves that, you know, support these protocols and clients work through them, um, the, these two non-colluding proxies to, um, to, to, you know, connect to origins and do whatever they want to do. And uh, it, it's two hops instead of one, because um, in the uh, in the in the in, in the web setting, you know, you're if, if you sort of look at what's happening on the wire, say a client wants to connect to example.com, um, it could if there's only one hop, the client would connect to this this forward proxy, this this one hop, and then ask, 
hey, uh, you know, hop number one, can you please open up a connection to example.com? Um, and depending on your threat model, um, that could be okay um, because the, you know, the uh, attacker that's between the client and this first hop doesn't see that you're trying to connect to example.com because this is all taking place within a tunnel between the client and the first hop. Um, but if your threat model includes the first hop, um, like the first hop necessarily learns that you're connecting to example.com, um, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't want that. So um, that's why iCloud Private Relay has another hop. So the, the first hop just learns that the client wants to connect to the second hop. Um, and then the second hop learns that some first hop wants to connect to some origin, but it doesn't learn uh, the client. So like there's this complete decoupling of uh, client identity, which is like the IP address and the origin that the client ultimately wants to connect to. Uh, okay, that, and, that's very and, interesting. Can we back up and like go through that process? Because you said it very yeah, quickly yeah. and... Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the, the complete end to end connection, you mean? Yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, let's, let's stick with iCloud by relay. So, um, uh, there, there, there are two proxies in this particular arrangement. Um, we'll call them proxy A and proxy B or first hop or second hop doesn't really matter. So the client, uh, trusts both of these proxies and they're non-colluding, which is the, the trust model and the, um, assumption that we're making here. So the client first establishes an HTTPS connection to the first hop proxy or proxy A. And then within that connection, it says, you know, please connect to proxy B. Please open up, for example, a TCP connection or please start proxying UDP datagrams to proxy B. In practice, it's the, it's the latter because we're using quick on these, uh, you know, heavily optimized paths between client and the, and the two proxy paths or the two different proxy providers. But it doesn't really matter. Like that's sort of an, an implementation detail at this point. Um, and then the client over that, that proxy connection opens up a HTTPS connection to proxy B. So now it has um, an outer connection to proxy A and then an inner end-to-end -end connection to proxy B. And then through that inner connection, it asks proxy B to connect to ultimately the origin. So example.com in this particular case. And then um, the client opens up an end-to-end -end TLS connection or does whatever it wants to do to that origin um, in the innermost, you know, tunnel, so to speak. So you have the this this nested layer of tunnels all built up around or, or all established using, you know, a, a variant of the, the connect method um, running over TCP or over quick or whatever. Um, and uh, at, the, at the highest level, that's sort of how uh, the architecture works. And there's a lot of like, this implementation detail that go into uh, or deployment considerations that go into making this, you know, perform well in practice. So for example, the, the network oriented people might be concerned about like congestion collapse and TCP and TCP and like what happens when you have these nested congestion controllers running. Um, but uh, part of the, the, the group, the part of the uh, outputs of the, the mass working group were, um, you know, these mechanisms to proxy unreliable UDP datagrams. Um, so you don't have like competing congestion controllers, um, uh, like working against each other, um, in, in a way that you would have in a nested TCP case. Uh, and that's just like one example of ways that you can improve things. There's also, uh, some pretty cool, um, uh, work that's been proposed for doing what's called quick aware proxying. So, um, if you, if you imagine, um, uh, the end-to-end the, the -end setup where there's like three connections, client to 
proxy A client to proxy B and client to origin all nested within one another. Um, you might think, you know, G, G the, the proxy A is certainly doing a lot of work to, to proxy these packets. It's, it's reading a datagram in, decrypting it, and then writing it back out. Um, so you have to touch basically every single byte of that packet. Um, and quick being traditionally like a, you know, user space, you know, protocol built on top of UDP means you have to like read a packet in from kernel in from the kernel into user space, decrypt it there and then write it back. Um, and this is at like line rate. That's like pretty expensive. It would be cooler if you could just, you know, kind of have packets like touch the kernel and then like do a quick, like routing table lookup and then, you know, be sent along to the next top without decryption in place. And uh, this this quick aware mode of proxying sort of enables that. So you have like high performance proxying uh, of quick specific connections um, without having to do any per packet decryption. And it's kind of a contentious topic because, um, you know, we, we spent a long time in the IETF trying to add more encryption and this specific like optimization is like, you know, working around that in a way, um, but for good reason. And, and I think under a reasonable threat model, but, uh, you know, that. that's, that, that's fascinating. Layers, la yeah. routing at layer seven. That's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about, so the client, does it do service discovery to figure out um, about the, the multiple, to figure out the multiple proxies or is it explicitly configured or what's the mechanism? Yeah. Great question. It's all explicitly configured right now, primarily because the, the, the question of uh, which proxies are suitable for use is is heavily based in like what is the the trust assumption that the the user happens to have or the vendor happens to have on behalf of the user um and trying to you know do service discovery in a way that's consistent with the user's trust model um is like a problem that the ietf is just uh, as of yet not equipped to solve like we've we've had to you know discovery it, it has come up in many ways shapes and forms it's come up in the context of like how do you discover potentially Doe resolvers on the network or trusted Doe resolvers um, uh, or Doe capable resolvers rather? It's come up in mass, it's come up with no Doe and no HTTP. Um, and uh, as to my knowledge, every single time it's come up, we, we um, you know, conveniently punted it down the road and say, you know, we will just for now explicitly configure these things because we don't know how to do this sort of discovery in a way that's like automated um, uh, in a way that can't be subverted, uh, uh, in a, and in a way that's sort of consistent with the user's expectations. Um, uh, so I would, I would consider like discovery to be kind of an open problem. Um, and there's, you know, perhaps there's some like protocol machinery and mechanics that, and infrastructure could be built to enable it. Um, like one of the, one of the things might be, uh, some way to reason about like the identity and keying material of a particular proxy provider and maybe their privacy policy and um like maybe like that becomes like machine readable or something totally well, like anytime you, you have know. a anytime you have a directory service like dns for instance i mean because you could always throw the problem at dns right you can make this a new yeah. dns record if you want to and say here distribute this and then you could count on DNSSEC for what you could count on from DNSSEC because a lot of people don't deploy it. Um, yeah. Or Odo or whatever to help you go find those proxies. But anytime you do that, you're kind of exposing an attack surface, it seems to me, just in the fact that you've now told everybody, these are my proxies. Like, I mean, I know we have this thing in security about obfuscation not being security. 
And I kind right. of ra- I kind of rail against that often because it's like then go on a battlefield wearing hunter orange clothing and talk to me about how obfuscation doesn't help you with security. Or just post your <laughs> private keys in your private public private key pair and then let's talk about obfuscation. You know, something's just got to be secret to make things work. You know, you, you can't have security without some kind of secret. And so it just um, feels like to me sometimes that we blow that over. But anyway. Well, I think the, the challenge here is not necessarily in like the mechanics. Um, so like, yeah, we, we know how to throw stuff in the DNS and we know how to sign it and like prove that it's authentic. But rather in like, how does the, like, how would the user know that like these two services that I happen to discover are not colluding? Like that's, that's yes, like right. the fundamental requirement that the system needs. And there's really nothing that you can like put in there beyond like an I'm not evil bit or like I'm definitely not colluding <laughs> with this other person bit um, that says, you know, no, I, no I'm, honest. Not, I'm not doing no, honest. Thing. I'm really not. <laughs> right. right. Um, so that's, that's the challenge. It's, 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 it's not like, you know, we, we know how to, the ITF is like generally pretty good at like, you know, figuring out where to put certain bits and move them around and stuff. Um, but those, those higher level policy like things are, um, are problems that the ITF, historically is not very good at addressing. So this, no, go ahead. ahead. I was just, sorry. I was just going to say that that like this, uh, it it feels like, um, you could, if you wanted to build another overlay on top of all the stuff we already have, you could build a routing scheme on top of the internet. Um, you could, you could put these proxy servers wherever you want. You could rather than using it for privacy, you could use it to build paths on top of the existing paths. Don't you think? I mean, you, yeah. you could use it as a routing protocol. For um, sure. For sure. It's pretty interesting. Um, and like, yeah, it, it remains to be seen, you know, what sort of like performance improvements you would get. We have seen like pretty good performance of, of like, you know, clients using these types of systems, because generally speaking, these, these overlay paths are like heavily optimized and, and, you know, configured for like, um, you know, getting the bits through as, and as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Um, uh, so yeah, there's like potential performance improvements to be gained here. Maybe it'll open up like new applications. If you like build like a new, new layer on top of, uh, the, you know, the existing internet, like, it, it's it's uh, pretty wild to think about that this is just you know this is like the early days of you know the next the next layer of the internet so to speak um, so it's interesting you say that because in my mind every time i think of a an overlay i immediately think i'm losing performance mm-hmm. because i am not necessarily taking the most optimal path i am you know there are many places where I'm suddenly looking at things and going, yeah, but really, is that really going to help me with the performance or is it going to be the other way around? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something that you think is somehow being different in this world because it's internet wide? Or I mean, is there some, I'm trying to figure out how, like, how we answer that kind of. Well, I I mean, Um, go ahead, Tom. I just, uh, your, your answer is more important than mine, but this just, just makes me think of, um, uh, cause I, cause I'm going to talk about an old relic, like, um, you know, in, back in the old days, I, I worked with internet too, and they had, mm. uh, I, I was, I was in a university that was a customer of internet. Now some people and, still think that's not old days, Tom. So that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, anyway, there, there was this service called the data transfer network. And the whole idea was we have these long flows that go all the way across the country for lab, you know, labs that need to share large data sets. So instead of like paying this tax, if I drop one single packet, TCP's performance drops through the floor, right? Then that's, this is terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. So instead we'll just, we'll just stitch a bunch of machines in between point A and point B. And then we can sort of get get around bandwidth delay product. Like we can sort of, we can shortcut it, cheat it. And because we have a multiple connections, we don't have to worry about these long RTTs and dropping a single packet. And we can stitch together a whole uh, a circuit, as it were. And and that did improve performance. It did make it so that you could. And it seems totally suboptimal. Like how you're stitching together four or five different sets. Like how, that's worse, right? But no, it, I mean because because the limitations of TCP, it actually was better, which was so counterintuitive. But um, that's that's just what the first thing I thought of. That's I don't think the answer here, but. Um, anyway, just a thought I had. Well, it's interesting I, you I, say, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I think the answer here, um, it, it, it's heavily dependent on, you know, quick as sort of the underlying transport and in the performance efficiencies and optimizations that quick allows. Um, so this quick aware proxying thing that I was mentioning earlier, the fact that you can, you can use quick basically end to end between clients and proxy, uh, a and proxy B, um, and, uh, uh, kind of not have to worry about, you know, any of the like head of line blocking that comes with, you know, running pro- proxying applications over TCP or older versions of HTTP. Um, so quick does enable like some performance boost, but you like pay for that and, and like more computation, there's like crypto, more crypto involved and stuff like that. So it is, it is in a way kind of counterintuitive that, you know, the performance would Im- improve, but I think like from a, you know, a, a network uh, engineering perspective, um, uh, the, the, these tricks sort of enable things to basically the, 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 the client's ultimate like connection origin, like the, where the, the, the TCP connection to the origin originates, it's like far closer to the actual origin than, than the client is. Um, and that like, at, at least in my mental model, that's like a, a big part of like what, what, you know, leads to improved performance or at least not performance regressions on average. Um, it's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I can kind of see that. But what you're basically doing is saying, all right, what we're going to do here is we're going to put more work on the servers in terms of serializing things and parallelizing things so that we can make the performance of the overall system better in theory. And again, we don't know if it's really true or not but it's true it's true from the sense that we're i guess it's true from the sense that we're making it we're getting more good put by doing this is that mm. that seems to me to be what we're doing here which is which is okay it's just kind of it always makes me suspicious it always makes me like okay wait a minute you're getting better performance by adding more layers of incap d incap and you can, I mean, there's the potential to make it way worse if you do dumb things, right? Like if, if you put one of these machines somewhere halfway across the world, obviously it's not going to make it any better. I think it, it sort of presupposes the, um, you know, some sort of sanity <laughs> in the underlay, but, yeah. um, that's, that's how all overlays are. If the underlay is busted or suboptimal, then you're it's, it's over like, or, or if the, the underlay is doing things that are, you know, um, it, it perhaps in the name of improved security and privacy. So this is often, the system is often compared to Tor. It, in fact, like it, you can kind of think of it as like a, you know, a, a, a real world deployment of Tor with a slightly relaxed threat model. So 
you know, Torrent does a lot of things, um, as we talked about last time, you know, to, to mitigate traffic analysis. It does like generates like, uh, like chaff traffic, I think adds things to like certain sizes, make sure that it does a lot of like shaping to, to ensure that like, things are look consistent or the same. And, uh, and, and this, this system doesn't do that. It doesn't like try to, you know, apply any of these defenses that would like lead to a reduction in performance. It chooses like a heavily optimized like path that is like composed of non-colluding members for the purposes of like decoupling information and, you know, whatever you can infer uh, in that particular arrangement from like traffic patterns, timing and stuff like that is, you know, assumed fair game. But at the scale at which, you know, we expect this thing to, to hopefully operate like in the future, or I would like to see this thing operate in the future that, you know, such, such attacks become sort of, you know, infeasible. So, yeah. I don't know if that helps or hurts, but yeah, no, that's 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 yeah, that's good. That's that's interesting. So it's really more a game of, uh, or it's a partially a game of law of large numbers. If if I get the numbers big enough, then kind of like I'm at a point where people can't really do the stuff that they would otherwise be able to do, just because I've got so many, and it just is what it is, right? Is that kind of a a one way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's a uh, the, there's always a a cost to to doing these types of things, and there's a benefit to doing them as well. Um, and you know, as scale goes up, uh, presumably the cost goes up as well to the point where it's you know no longer like financially feasible, but to like do these things, unless you're like you know some massive entity that like where cost is irrelevant. Maybe those exist, but well, I mean, pe- people might say, "Yeah, they do exist," and you know, they're called governments. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not even sure that's always true. I mean, governments still have, you know, it's it's funny how you never see on a crime show, but well, we don't have budget for that. Yeah, right. Whatever it is, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh no, we're doing 14 autopsies today on all these victims." And you're like. In the real world, they just don't do autopsies on everybody. <laughs> I mean, they just don't. It's just a thing. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. But yeah. So, okay. very. It's all very interesting to me how this might work and stuff. So as a deployment model, how do you see this working? Do you see, again, where people might decide to do this for the community good? Do you see a commercial way of deploying this that's helpful do you i mean how do you see that working um or are it, we way, way ahead of what the game needs to be it, it's hard for me to say um you know I, I, right now it, it, it's it's commercially driven because like you know these are these are like services that are providing like value to end users they can't be like you know run them from you know some 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 person's like machine behind their couch or whatever but you know it Maybe if the if the the architecture were if we like did find a way to you know uh, address these like policy questions these discovery questions like maybe it'd be possible to extend to you know you know mom and pop shops or you know hobbyists who want to run services for the good of the internet in a tour like manner but I I don't think we're there just yet right now it it you know these are very manually explicitly configured things that are. Um, uh, you know, commercially run, and um, that's what kind of keeps them like up and running. Um, but you know, future is hard to predict. Uh, I, I would, I would certainly love to see, you know, as we talked about last time again. Um, you know, these systems kind of be more open 
to for people to participate both as a user as well as a kind of contributor. But we need a we need a right atlas probe thing for these for these proxies, right? Call me and we'll send you a, a Raspberry Pi with yeah. a proxy on it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I said that I just installed my you can't see it from here, but I have a I just put up a I just put up a right atlas probe at my house. And it's like it takes two seconds to put up, it helps the internet. Like it's not really costing me anything in terms of bandwidth or anything. That would be the real difference. In this case, you'd be proxying real traffic. So yeah. it would be eating your bandwidth like a Tor node does. So it becomes mm -hmm. more it becomes more difficult. Okay, so let's talk about the mask working group a bit. So yeah. what is the future for that? So right now the group is finishing up. In fact, this morning I kicked off an email to start working group last call for the 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 draft or the the the, the extension for proxying IP datagrams. And I presume that will go forward without issue. So we're basically at a point where we've sort of accomplished and succeeded in delivering our, our primary deliverables, which were mechanisms for proxying UDP datagrams and IP datagrams. And next up are basically, you know, extensions to to help support these types of, you know, systems in, in the real world. So that quick and rare proxying thing potentially is in scope. Other extensions that would enable, you know, mask or these proxy like systems to be used from like a web context or for web transport, maybe potentially in scope. Um, but uh, the, the group uh, needs to recharter soon. We we haven't yet, you know, figured out or finalized exactly what the charter text will say. But I expect the next sort of chapter of the group to be focused on, you know, a, a well-defined set of mechanisms to support these proxy systems in production. Um, and then mo most likely the group will close down because it, you know, the Everything else can be done elsewhere, like in the long-lived HTTP maintenance working group, or you know, in the quick working group, or something like that. But we're, you know, we're reaching the end of the road. Interesting. I mean, a lot of people don't think about this, right? We often think that once you start an IETF working group, it lasts forever. It's like yeah. it's just there out there, and it's just doing stuff. And that's really not the way the IETF works. I mean, I'm currently right. co-chairing Babel, which looks like we're getting ready to shut that down. I'm currently co-chairing I2RS which has been asleep mm -hmm. for a long time, hasn't had new, no new activity. So it feels like we should shut that down. Um, mm -hmm. We have new working groups coming up. We're talking about TDR right now, trying to think about, um, I may end up co-chairing TDR. We'll have to see where that goes. TDR or TVR? TDR, time variant. What is that? Routing, time variant. Oh, okay. So there's, I mean, it's not like these things are permanent. There is a time frame. See, I would say, well, Chris, how do we get people involved in this work and join a mailing list and stuff? But it sounds mm -hmm. like you're kind of at the point where it's more cleanup action at this point. I don't know. Could people still help with the people? Absolutely. I think, I mean, at this point, like, you know, um, more implementations and like more actual users of the system and of, of these technologies is like definitely something that will help. And that will potentially shape, you know, you know, what, 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 what group or what uh, extensions that you know the mass work group needs to take on to support these things in practice? Like if we find that you know turns out it's really hard to build like application APIs for using these types of systems or proxying generic things in the absence of whatever, then maybe that maybe this the work group should focus on like providing whatever you know to 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 help to help applications use the thing. So just the the diversity in applications right now is 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 um you know still pretty small i think the, the the primary contribution beyond like actually working on protocol mechanics and you know 
chiming in the mailing list is is using this stuff you know as as application developers and as uh, you know operating system vendors like anyone anyone can use this stuff and that that would certainly help shape the trajectory okay it's interesting yeah because that's the other thing we often miss about the itf is we always think of people sitting in the itf as being all coders and all like yeah. deep technical and that's not necessarily true there's actually a mm-hmm. lot of space for people who are just users to step mm-hmm. in and and i know that from the outside it's all very scary and complex well it appears to be it's it's really not trust me it's not um <laughs> I think that certainly like that. Just, yeah, you can participate by just reading the draft and making comments over pieces you didn't understand. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can, I, 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 I certainly sympathize with, you know, newcomers to the ITF um, and how intimidating the, the drafts themselves and the, the mailing list conversations and the tone can be. Um, but I do think we're getting better at like sort of, you know, um, being more accommodating to to people who are new to the to the scene to to you know in terms of welcoming their contributions working with them to like you know help their make their feedback land in, in a meaningful way but yeah it is just like you said you know read a draft send comments email the authors in my experience like people who are like working on these things as volunteers are you know open to feedback whatever shape that feedback can be provided it's not like you know, this is bad and you should feel bad. Like that's generally not the best feedback. Uh, yeah, please, please yeah. make it useful feedback. Not, yeah, right, right. <laughs> not um, oh my goodness, this really stinks. Try again. Like, okay, yeah, right, that was, right. that's very actionable. I'll just tell you, that's really, that's useful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, you know, people, there's still, there's still definitely room to contribute both uh, in, in terms of like the actual mechanics, but, uh, and then also as a user, because like at the end of the day, you know, the, the system, the, the, we're building these things, we're specifying these technologies so that people can like use them in practice. And if we're like, we don't have the experience of people using them, it seems like potentially we're, you know, solving or we're, we're not, we're not providing the right solution. Like we build a perfectly secure and private protocol for whatever definition that happens to mean meet, but it's like completely unusable. Then like, who cares? Who cares about the protocol? You can't use it. So I, I think that is perhaps, you know, the, if someone were looking for a new project as, as like a, a student or, you know, hobbyist, that's, that's where I would look. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Bruce and I once talked about, if you really want your data to be secure, you put it on, a USB thumb drive or something, you encase it in concrete, concrete, and you dump it in the ocean, right? And you're probably never going to get to it, but you're probably never going to get to it. <laughs> you know? I never heard that, but that sounds right. You know, it's, you can dump it in the Mariana Trench; it'll be seven miles under the ocean. We don't have any kind of submarine that can go to the bottom. Your data is probably secure, okay? But <laughs> I like that you use the word probably. Like yeah. that's that's the the you know that's the the correct threat model perspective. Yeah. Like there's there's probably a way that it could there, there might there. be a way at some point, right? There, there could be a massive earthquake or something, and the trench could lift up, and your concrete it, box can end up on the surface. But 
for the most part against human threat actors. You're probably you're a natural. You're yeah. a natural. Oh <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. So where can people find this work if they want to get involved? I'm assuming you can just point them to the mask working group, the hidden mailing list, because it's gotta be hidden with a name like mask. <laughs> yeah, it's uh yeah, if you just search for IETF mask and it's not spelled in the the, the the usual way it's again it's an acronym for multiplexed application substrate over quick encryption so masque uh you can find all of the the drafts that the the group is working on as well and you know pointers to the mailing list and uh there's you know recordings of old meetings that you know could be interesting to people some of them are a bit you know in the weeds in terms of technical details but some of them are you know could be useful context you know if people want to fill in the gaps for things that we talked about here sure Awesome. Great. Okay. And where can people follow you if they really want to catch up with you, if you're doing anything interesting in you? Well, I, again, I'm sort of social media averse, but if people want to shoot me an email, I'm happy to, to you know, have conversations and over email or, or in person. If you're ever in New York City, go for coffee or a run. That works as or well. Or go to the Le Maison du Chocolat at the base of the exactly. and get some hot chocolate. <laughs> they also sell chocolate ice cream, just, just so you know. <clears throat> It's an all things chocolate store. So, you know, it is what it is. So, Tom, right. where can people find you if they want to follow you or keep up with you? Uh, just LinkedIn and Twitter. Search for Tom Ammon. You'll probably find me. Awesome. Okay. I'm Russ White. You can find me here on the hedge at rule11.tech. LinkedIn, I don't know, wherever else. I'm kind of like overwhelmed at the moment with stuff. So, I'm not answering email as quickly as I should. But maybe by the time the show is actually posted, I'll be less overwhelmed. I doubt it. It doesn't seem like there's any less overwhelming in my future at the moment. So thanks, Chris, for coming on and talking to us about masks. And thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. And we will catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.